I love doing what I do, and and it gives me energy. And I so you know I'll just continue doing that until um, you know I can't. Yes, ma'am. It is October 27th, 2021, and you are listening to episode 39 of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. What's going on, everybody? Sam Rothstein here, acting principal clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. I, John was just laughing as we were doing the introduction. I can't believe I have 39 episodes. Um, if you are a fan of the Candid Clarinetist and want to help support our content, please take a brief moment to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or your favorite podcasting platform. This will ensure that you have access to our content as soon as it becomes available. And it is my great pleasure to introduce today's guest. John Broussier has been a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra since 1977, having been appointed by music director George Schulte. He currently holds the position of assistant principal clarinet and E-flat clarinet with the Chicago Symphony. John is a fantastic teacher, orchestral player, and chamber musician, and also happens to be one of the nicest and most generous individuals you will ever meet. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really a great pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks for asking me, Sam. It's great to see you and great to talk to you. And uh, acting principal in Indianapolis, I, I, I'm sorry to admit that I did not know that. I thought you were bass clarinet there, but did did Dave Bellman David retire? retired, yeah. He retired uh, right before the pandemic. Uh, well, I, excuse me, right after the pandemic, so during the pandemic I, season, yeah. I did not know that. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Do, um, so... That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Wonderful. sort of by default, but you know, it's I'll take it. <laughs> of course. You know, yeah. it's fantastic. It's, it's a wonderful orchestra and, you know, great colleagues. And uh, what a great experience for you to be moving from bass clarinet to uh, principal. That's yeah. that's wonderful. Something I, that you're I, familiar with, actually. It's something that I wanted to yeah, ask you about. Um, totally. So when you, when you joined the Chicago Symphony, you were appointed as bass clarinetist. Am I, am I, am I right That's correct. Yep. Yeah. I auditioned for and, uh, and joined the, uh, the Chicago Symphony as bass clarinetist. And um, shortly thereafter, the principal clarinetist, Clark Brody, retired. So during my first season, he retired. And so then we were shorthanded. And then Larry... Combs, who was uh, assistant principal, moved up to principal, and then I was sort of like left to choose whichever part I wanted for the for a few years there. So I would play either bass or E flat, and sometimes Larry would rotate off principal and have me play principal on certain pieces. And so I got a lot of experience in my first three years in the orchestra on all the different parts. And yeah, and and not only did you get experience on all the different parts, but it, I'm, it's my understanding that you that you also recorded in every single chair in the orchestra. That is absolutely true. Yep, in my first uh, year, of course, I made several recordings on bass clarinet. But then, uh, when Larry would play principal, often I would play second. So there were a few um, recordings where I played second clarinet. And uh, and there was one recording that I played second clarinet with Clark Brody playing principal, and that was with Julini, and we did a Schubert Fourth Symphony, and 
it was cool because last week we were playing the Schubert Third Symphony here um, in in the CSO with Jimmy Conlon, and it just reminded me of that uh, time when those un, you know those fairly early Schubert symphonies that aren't played a lot, and we played the the fourth with Giulini, and I got to record that with Clark, and that that was a special occasion. And then, of course, um, you know, once we we started making recordings and they needed E flat, and we didn't have um, a full section, I, I could play, you know, E flat on on some recordings, and then basshorn and contrabass clarinet. You know, whenever stuff comes up like that, um, everybody kind of looks at me, and I said, "Okay, I'll play yeah. it." You know, and <laughs> I love playing the um, the contrabass clarinet. You know, when there's an opportunity and and the basset horn, so so all of those different um, unusual instruments. I think it's really uh, uh, a challenge, first of all, to play them all, and then um, it's it's an opportunity when there's wonderful music for those piece for those instruments. And uh, if I could flatter you for a second, one of my uh, things I most admire about you is is your versatility uh, with with that playing different instruments and playing the different chairs. I played. A, I was fortunate to play a couple concerts with the Chicago Symphony at Ravinia, and yeah. there was one program. And what you did, you played uh, is the same program. You played mm-hmm. Appalachian Spring. You played principal principal in Appalachian Spring, and then you played mm-hmm. principal in Rhapsody in Blue. And then for mm-hmm. the second half, you moved over and played E flat on Rite of Spring. And oh, I was, wow. I was just, and it was all the same I program. Did that? You did, yeah. And 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 I was sitting there. I remember because Jonathan Gunn was also playing um, oh, with the yeah. orchestra, and him and I were talking about. it. I was like, I can't believe this guy is doing this on one. And you know those Ravinia concerts, it's like one rehearsal and go. Right. Like there's no, there's no time to breathe. So it was just amazing mm-hmm. seeing that you were just first of all willing to do that because not a lot of people would be willing to do that. And then mm. just able to do it so beautifully and, and with such, you know, artistry. It's, and so I've always admired that about you. And it's something that I strive to do in my own playing is I, I think that, um, and maybe you can speak to this, and I'm sure you, you challenge your students to do the same, is I think it's really important for people to be versatile and able to play all the instruments because sometimes things Absolutely. come up. Yeah. Do you, do you want to say any words on that? Well, sure. I think, um, you know, from my very uh, first experiences in youth orchestra when I was in growing up in Los Angeles, I um, had the opportunity p- to play in the American Youth Symphony with Maley Mehta. And he was, um, you know, the, the orchestra conductor at uh, UCLA and, um, you know, the father of Zubin Mehta and Zarin Mehta and sort of, um, you know, I-, I learned everything about orchestra music from from Maley. And then there was this opportunity to play the uh, Chaturian Piano Concerto. And, and I had kind of fooled around on the bass clarinet at, at, at high school because they had like a Bundy. And I took it out one day and I just kind of like fooled around on it. I said, oh, this is kind of fun. And they said um, at American Youth, well, you know, if we're looking for a bass clarinet player. If uh, you can play this Chaturian, it's a pretty important part, I think. And I said, uh, Okay, well, I'll have a look at it. And I said, well, this looks like it would be fun. And I said, but you got to get me a good bass clarinet because the, the Bundy that I have doesn't go down to low C. And I see that this piece goes down to low C. So they they got a, a really nice a Selmer low C bass clarinet and, and they bought it. And so I, I said, okay, this is great. And so I had a great time. And so that was sort of my... Um, entree into into playing nice so up to that point you know i was only like maybe 14 or 15 and up to that point i was just playing like 
assistant second and and things right. at the end of the you know section and just kind of like easing my way into the orchestra but then this was an opportunity to play a, a solo and and it was just so fun and so then um uh, the bass clarinet has opened lots of doors for me you know and not only youth orchestra but also getting into juilliard when i decided to transfer from ucla to juilliard they didn't have any openings um, at the time when I decided to audition in the clarinet uh, department. But they said, well, you know, there's a vacancy in the bass clarinet department. You can audition on bass clarinet. So I said, great. You know, because I, for some reason I, I didn't audition until September for entry into September because I made a decision late in the uh, spring to to transfer because I was a pre-med major at UCLA and I went right. there for two years as a pre-med major and finally I decided uh, this is not really for me but I'd love to go to to uh, to a conservatory and I had had some experience at Aspen and Aspen was a, a big summer school I guess it sort of still is for for Juilliard faculty and Juilliard students and so I decided hmm, I think I'll audition for Juilliard and you know um I told my parents and they kind of looked at each other because they thought I was going to go to medical school and right. <laughs> and it was like okay and then they said well we want you to be happy so we're going to support you if you do your best so I said that is great thank you so much so I that's a great gift that my parents gave me yeah. and so when I went to uh uh, Juilliard, it was to audition, but I did it on the bass clarinet, and that got me in. And then my my teacher who taught bass clarinet and clarinet and saxophone, Joe Allard, he said, well, you know, if, if you want to be a clarinet major, you can change your major. You know, I, I'm not going to force you to be a bass clarinet major. You can still take um, bass clarinet and clarinet with me. So that was, uh, so he, uh, he said, just go to the office and tell them you're changing your major. So I did. And so I, I got in on bass clarinet, but then I was a clarinet major at Juilliard for the two years I was there. And then, of course, when auditions start, um, started coming up, I, um, most of them at that time were bass clarinet auditions. You know, it just happened to be, you know, it's sort of cycles yep. that their people retire or you know, in, in my case, my predecessor just died suddenly. George Weber, who was the bass clarinetist for many years in the Chicago Symphony, suddenly didn't show up to a recording session. And they went to his house and he was dead. Mm -hmm. And I know. So it was like uh, suddenly there was an opening in the Chicago Symphony on bass clarinet. But prior to that, there was an opening on in the Los Angeles Philharmonic because the... Uh, Longtime uh, bass clarinetist there, Franklin Stokes, had just retired. And there was an um, audition in the uh, Cincinnati Symphony. And so I had opportunities to take a couple of bass clarinet auditions before my uh, Chicago Symphony audition. And in between, there was also an audition for principal clarinet in the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, which is something that really interested me. And that was a uh, that was a cool um, possibility. So I, I went there, and it was Dennis Russell Davies, the music director, who had been a conductor that I worked with at Aspen. And so I said, this would be fantastic. So I auditioned, and I, I made the finals, and I 
played my best and I went in there and I had a great time. I got to play with the, uh, the wind quintet. We played the Hinamit uh, quintet. And, and then they said, okay, we'll call you. And there, there was like, uh, okay. So I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And the next morning, Dennis calls me, the, the music director. And he says, well, you know, I'm sorry. We um, decided to give it to the other guy because there were just me and Tim Paradise who ultimately got it and stayed there for a long time. You know, he just mm-hmm. very recently retired. But um, they said, well, you know, Tim had had music. He had had an experience uh, playing in playing principal in an orchestra in Victoria, Columbia, British Columbia, and uh, and you know, we thought you wanted to play symphonic music and we thought we'd be holding you back if we gave you this job. <laughs> and I, I said, come on. No, he's, yeah. I said, he said, no, because we, we thought, you know, you're really, um, talented and virtuosic. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna go far. And we didn't want to just have you here in St. Paul and play in a little chamber orchestra. And I said, but I love chamber. He said, just, just keep doing what you're doing. And so I said, I went, walked out of there kind of dejected. But then a month later, I was in the Chicago Symphony. And I said, well, Dennis, I guess he called it right. You know, yeah, he, right. and he gave me this little push. And it was the, um, the bass clarinet again that got me into the Chicago Symphony because that was the opening that was advertised. And then a couple of years later, you know, uh, they had auditions. Um, I did an internal audition for E flat and assistant principal, and and in those days it was a little bit more of a formality. If somebody from the section wanted to move up, and you you know could demonstrate that you were proficient, they were likely to give you. Uh, a good opportunity. And Schulte was like, yeah, you know, play, play a few of the excerpts, play Tillman's Beagle, play, you know, um, uh, you know, the Bolero play, uh, you know, Symphony Fantastique and, and, you know, and then play a few first clarinet excerpts, you know, Beethoven six and miraculous Mandarin and stuff like that. Play the Mozart concerto. And everybody kind of like went downstairs and then came back a few minutes later and said, okay, you're in. And so it was like, (laughs) It was fairly informal in those days. Nowadays, it's like much the stakes are much higher. This is like so 45 years ago. And um, now it is like people it is a very, very tough uh, audition scene nowadays. You know, it's the the committee is very, very discerning. And it's like if there's even a tiny little inkling that this person has, you know, and I don't, I don't really, because I've sat on a few committees and I've also, um, I've also observed a few auditions for, um, auditions that I wasn't on the committee, but just was there and people are very, very critical. And, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe you should give these guys a chance. So often people have to audition two or three or four times until they're, given that chance to actually sit in the orchestra and have a trial. So nowadays it's, it's more, more complicated and, and more, um, higher stakes, I would say. Mm -hmm. But, but I think it's always important to be ready and to, to answer your question about versatility. It's like, if I, um, if I had, 
um, passed on the bass clarinet opportunity when I was in uh, youth orchestra, I might never have like grown to love the instrument. And I and I really do love the bass clarinet. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's so I, I always relish the opportunity to play it. So I'm. Um, even now this week, we're playing Music Now, which is the contemporary music yeah. uh, series that we have. And there's bass clarinet. And I said, you know, I'll play it. And and so it's like I, I, I always am open for um, a challenge. Sometimes I bite off more than, than I can chew. And sometimes it's you know a little bit, yeah. you know, oh, I don't <laughs> know why I said yes to this. But, you know, I'm still um, I'm still doing it. You know, I, I'm. Um, I'm happy to take. And one of my uh, recent projects was to, I don't know if you know this piece, but I recorded a uh, piece for percussion quartet and bass clarinet by Nigel Westlake. It's called Malachite Glass. It is a fabulous piece. And the percussion uh, teacher, professor at the Vandercook College of Music here in uh, Chicago uh, called me and um, said, you know, we'd like you to play this piece on your recital because I, I agreed to do a little recital there. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, how about if you just put this piece on your recital? And I said, well, let me take a look at it. And there were, it was like, uh, OK, well, I think if I and you, all you have to do is ask my wife. She's never heard me practice this hard yeah. for years. It's like I've, I was like sh- shedding away at this Malachite Glass by Nigel Westlake. It's a really, really tough, tricky piece. But we finally played it and we performed it and we and we recorded it. And so we'll have to see how that turns out. I'm, I haven't heard the result of that. But um, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I love the bass clarinet. So if somebody says, OK, here, I, I will give I will definitely give a lot of consideration to that. And then, you know, the contrabass clarinet is something that comes up very occasionally, but in in the Barenboim years, when we were touring with Daniel Barenboim, when he was our music director, we'd invariably have to take the contrabass because he would do Schoenberg's five pieces for orchestra a lot. Mm-hmm. And that has contrabass clarinet in the first movement. And so it always carried the contrabass. And then there was there were a few tours that we did the Corleano Symphony. And that was a piece that was written for our orchestra. And I'd actually, um, I was sort of on the, um, lobbying kick for the contrabass clarinet. It's like we've got these great composers writing for us, and, and you know Takamitsu and Berio and and now Corleano. And I would always kind of like sidle up to them and say, "Hey, did you consider putting a contrabass clarinet part in it?" And they would say, "Hmm, no." And then Corleano was really the first one that that did a featured part, and he actually made a part for me where I had to triple and play the regular soprano B-flat clarinet, the contrabass clarinet, and the E-flat all in one part. And so so he made this part especially for me, and we took it on tour, and um, it was like we, we could never leave the contrabass at home <laughs> when we went on tour, and it was sort of funny, but... Um, but now it's been in the in the locker for a little while. We haven't played much with the contrabass recently, but uh, but uh, Muti did a piece with contrabass. We did the uh, a ligati piece that had that had a contrabass part in it, so I had to play that. But uh, yeah, it, it's 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 great to be versatile and and to you know give 
give a lot of variety in your repertoire and and I think it it makes you more marketable and that that was yeah. one thing I learned from um, when I was at Tanglewood and the bass clarinetist of the Boston Symphony was uh, Felix Visculia he walked out of a, a concert um, of Mahler one and you know he's carrying his bass clarinet and his his you know regular clarinets and his E flat and he he looks at me with a twinkle in his eye and he points to his E flat and he says here's my E flat he says um, I just like earn doubling on that and he says you know it pays to be versatile and I always remember that and and I said um, yeah totally yeah I, I remember Laurie used to always say to us. Um, it's like the last thing you want to do is get a call from an orchestra like Milwaukee or Indianapolis or Chicago and they say, hey, we need somebody to come in and play bass clarinet. Can you do it? And you have to say no. Like that's not no. a, yeah, that's that's the worst, right? And so it, right. he always stressed it's very important to learn all these instruments because it opens up opportunities. Um, you Absolutely. Know, it's opened up a ton of doors for me, obviously for you. Um, yep. So yeah, that's, that's great. And I'm glad you were able to speak to that. So this past year, obviously, you know, uh, you hadn't been playing in the orchestra regularly. I know you guys did some recorded chamber music mm -hmm. projects and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. um, did you did you have any projects that you did sort of outside the orchestra that you were able to work on? And yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the well, one of the the big things about the um, the pandemic was that we could not play for an audience in orchestra hall. But we could play on the stage of Orchestra Hall, and we did do repertoire that we wouldn't ordinarily do, and that is all these chamber music. And I'm just thinking about it this morning, I actually participated in 11 of those recordings, and they're starting to re-release them for free on CSO TV, on the CSO.org website. And just yesterday, they, they uh, issued for the first time the one we did of the Villa Lobos Quintet. Oh, and that was that was wild. You know, that's one of the ones that was still in the can and they hadn't issued that until yesterday. And then there's one more that I did. And that's the um, Till Ernspiegel Einmal Anders. So I'm, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's so much fun. And so but then there have been other ones like we did the whole complete soldier's tale and we did, you know, uh, the Mozart Grand Partita, which was the biggest thing that was huge. And, uh, you know, a couple of other wind octets and a couple of other wind quintets. And, you know, it's just, just it was an opportunity to play music that we wouldn't ordinarily do and, and to really, you know, memorialize it on these uh, videos. And, and that turned out to be wonderful. Um, but outside of that, I, uh, you know, suddenly in March of 2020, I found myself with time on my hands, which is highly unusual. You know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, you're a busy guy. Like, I'm so, it's like we were working and working and working. We were on tour in Europe and we were on tour in Florida and we came back and played concerts. And then suddenly, and then I went and did a recital in um, North Dakota and, and went on Molly's show, my daughter's show. And suddenly everything stopped. And it was like, wow, you know, we can take a breath. And we thought, man, maybe a couple of weeks, you know, it'll be over and, and we can go back. And then a couple of weeks stretched into a month and a couple of months. And then we were saying, wow, you know, what's going on now? And so after, you know, a couple of months of, um, you know, getting up late and, and you know, t teaching my students online, I thought, you know, there's quite a bit of music that I've had sitting on my 
um, in my stacks that I, I would love to learn, like music that was actually written for me, like the Yetudes by, uh, by Jim Stevenson. So Jim Stevenson, Chicago composer, mm-hmm. has written some music for me, like a sonata, uh, a concerto, and uh, some chamber music. And, and I recorded 74 minutes of his chamber music and the concerto and the sonata. Um, in 2018. And that uh, recording on for CD Records is titled Liquid Melancholy, because that's the name of his uh, clarinet concerto. And we recorded that with the Lake Forest Symphony. And um, that turned out to be a great project. And then subsequent to that, I mean, Jim's always looking for uh, opportunities, and he's very, very enterprising uh, about getting commissions from consortiums. So then he got a consortium to commission a series of yetudes, which are 12, you know, unaccompanied solo clarinet pieces that each one of the 12 is dedicated to a specific um, challenge in playing the clarinet. Like the first one is like going over the break and the second one is like high staccato in pianissimo and, you know, other ones are big leaps and other ones are, you know, all different, um, different things. And he made them um, musically interesting, but they they were difficult. And each one of them is named for a different recipe from my daughter's blog, from Molly's blog, oh, mynameisye.com. And so the, the first one is uh, Egg Boy's Birthday Cake. And then the, there's po- <laughs> Pony... Um, Funfetti Pony Cake. And then there's, you know, it's like molten lava halva cakes and you know it's just like it, it, it makes you hungry just just looking at the titles and looking at the pictures of these uh, these different cakes but um finally i had time to learn them and so i put uh, i learned them one by one and um and i put some of them on my facebook page and so that was a project that i uh had finally had time to do because i would get this book and I'd make my students learn these pieces, but I hadn't really learned them yet. Right. So it was an opportunity to learn the Yetudes, and that that was good. And then um, I had the uh, the John Williams Clarinet Concerto sitting in my stacks that uh, was written for Michelle Zukowski back in the 1990s, and she's a great um, you know friend of mine and a great mentor to me. And she was she was my teacher when I was in high school uh, during the summers. And so she sent me this concerto like years ago, and I, I looked at it like a couple of times, and I said, oh, gosh, this is too hard. And I finally had it in the back of my mind that, gosh, you know, I, I saw John Williams recently because we were in Vienna at the same time. My my family was just kind of um, uh, sightseeing, and we were in St. Um, Stephen's Cathedral, Stefan's Dome, and there's John Williams. So I was like, oh, hi, you know, so, oh, yeah, oh, gosh, you know, and he's he was there making his debut with the um, Vienna Philharmonic, you know, at, at the age of 88. And, and it was like, we had a nice little chat, and I said, you know, I'd love to play your clarinet concerto. And so, he, uh, I, you know, I had asked him several times before then, because he, he comes here on a reg- fairly regular basis. And... Um, he said, well, you know, I, I'm, I think the piece still needs work. And, you know, he sort of like um, shied away from sending me the score. But finally, I caught him in the 
St. Stephen's Cathedral. I said, John, you know, I really want to see your clarinet concerto. So he finally sends it to me. So I, I finally have the score and I'm learning his clarinet concerto. And um, just a couple of days ago, I've, I've run through it with, uh, with Patrick, my pianist, and I'm really pumped to play it. So it's, it's going to be, we're going to do, uh, do some performances of it um, coming up. I'm, I'm just, uh, that's another big project because it really took a long time to, it was a tough nut to crack. Yeah. And I'm, 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 uh, I'm really happy now because I love the piece and it'll be, it'll be exciting to hear it with an it's orchestra because it's a it's a massive orchestra it's it's a huge you know it's triple winds and brass and percussion and harp and piano it's it's just huge yeah. so that's another project and then um my wife Teresa Teresa Riley has been actually getting into composition lately so uh one of the big projects that we did was she wrote a duet for the two of us and so we um put that we worked on it and we put it together and we played it on um a sort of a private internet concert for for her uh her brother has um has a a, a society and for like i guess it's based in california it's kind of like a um uh, meditation society so we played mm -hmm. this piece during the pandemic and it was it was very sort of like meditative in certain spots and and then she's reworking it now and um uh, during the time, the pandemic, uh, I had this uh, call from CD, the, the record company that I've made several recordings with here in Chicago. And, and he wanted, he's on um, Jim Ginsburg, you know, uh, Justice Ginsburg's son, who, who runs this recording company, has this idea to record a bunch of Sowerby, who is a Chicago composer that's... Um, we haven't played much of his music uh, during the time that I've been here, but we did play a piece by Sowerby with Schulte. It was an orchestra piece. And now Jim has sort of dug into the Sowerby archives and putting together some chamber music. So he asked me if I would get a wind quintet together to do his wind quintet. And I said, well, I don't know this piece, but uh, certainly I'll take a look at it. And we um, put it on one of the CSO TV concerts and it turned out to be a really really interesting piece and i'm looking through other sowerby it turns out he's written this sonata for clarinet and piano which is massive it's like 25 minute it's like a brahms sonata yeah <laughs> but in in a different uh in a different language you know and so it's um it's a piece that i started to work on and then it occurred to me that there are a few other chicago composers who wrote Parent pieces like uh, Muczynski wrote timepieces. He he's a Chicago composer, and um, and then I did some research and I found this other piece by Cherepnin, and um, it's a little one movement sonata. And then I put together this program of Chicago clarinet pieces, and Jim, uh, we're going to record it for uh, for for uh, CD and Teresa's duet is going to be on it, and these three sonatas. And then um, he said, suggested Stacy Garrup's unaccompanied clarinet piece. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's really it's a cool piece mm -hmm. called uh, uh, Phoenix Rising. Originally, it's for saxophone, but it's uh, been transcribed for uh, clarinet. 
And so I've been working on that, and I actually performed it on my recital at uh, Vandercook uh, last month. And then um, uh, Shulamit Ron's piece um, for an actor who she wrote in 1978 for uh, for Laura Flax. And it turns out that Shulamit has a, a fairly new piece um, also from the company Clarinet. So this is going to be a full album of music by Chicago composers that wrote for clarinet so i'm i've been working on that and it's it's a big it's a big project it's oh yeah even bigger than the project that i did when i did um jim stevenson's music and and so this is what i've been spending my time on preparing these programs and um you know learning stevenson's yetudes doing this uh, chicago clarinet classics uh album getting it ready and learning John Williams's concerto, and then doing all these CSO TV. So, you know, it's did you like, ever take any uh, time off, or <laughs> you just went straight you know, in? I, I, I took, I took basically, you know, sort of a month and a half off because I was so tired from traveling and playing orchestra all the time. It was like, ah, you know, it's. And we spent most of the year in Michigan. We have a vacation home in Michigan, uh-huh. and our daughter was on um, online. She did her very her first year in high school, her freshman year of high school, completely online. Sure. So we were able to, we, we had to install Wi-Fi in our, in our vacation <laughs> home, but we, we basically lived there for, for a year. And, um, and then we came back when they started doing the CSO TV things, mm-hmm. uh, back in October of 2020, that's when, um, they started. So we had basically the, the summer off and most of the spring off, and then uh, we started doing the uh, CSO TV. So that was that was really it was a great project, and I hope they continue to do that because to have a presence on TV is so important. You know, I've been watching yeah. um, Teresa and I subscribe to the Berlin Philharmonic uh, Digital Concert Hall, and it's really um, they set the standard. I mean, they yeah. they do all their concerts uh, live, real time on TV on Saturdays, and then they repeat it on Sundays. And so we we watch those uh, every week. And then they had during the pandemic, they did chamber music too, and it was it was so inspiring to see that. And um, you know, I got to see. I sort of joked that I I got to see Mathieu. You know, who who was there? principal flute player more than right. I got to see him when he was in Chicago, when he was our principal flute player, because <laughs> I watch him every week on TV. And so that that was a, a wonderful thing, and I'm happy that they're continuing with with the CSO TV, because, you know, we played a lot of repertoire that we wouldn't ordinarily do, and uh, and, and it was it was uh, a great experience. So, yeah, yeah now, now we're back into um, back into the orchestra thing, and um, so I'm trying to balance everything you know back to teaching and i did do a lot of teaching over the pandemic and i did i taught all my students online and that turned out to be more effective than i ever thought it would be Mm -hmm. so teaching on you know skype or or uh, or facetime or zoom it it all worked out really well so so we didn't really lose uh, a lot. We we lost the opportunity to play for a live audience in orchestra hall as a complete orchestra. But, you know, there were a lot of silver linings to the Corona cloud. You know, we really were able to salvage a lot of um, artistic and, uh, you know, creative opportunities. And, um, and I'm thankful for that. And 
adding on to that, has the pandemic sort of affected the way you view your life and career and just this industry? Like, do you have any thoughts or revelations that you sort of come, came to as, as everything just immediately had mm-hmm. to change so, so quickly? Yeah, well, you know, it just, it, we, we realize, of course, that it's um, important to be flexible and to be able to adapt and adaptable. So part of the, uh, uh, what came out of it is that, you know, we can't really take for granted the sort of lifestyle that we always we're able to enjoy, but we have to create other opportunities and we have to make, uh, creative decisions that are going to be, um, you know, rolling with the punches, so to speak. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't perform for a, for a live audience. So we have to do it via the internet. And I don't think teaching even 10 years ago, I don't think even teaching over the internet would have been as successful as it was this year. And so that is one one thing that I'm I'm um, thankful for. It was like, and there were actually you know certain um, practicalities that that made it even advantageous. You know, you don't have to worry about traffic, and you don't have to worry about right. you know you know parking and stuff like that. It's just like you turn on the um, computer, and your your student is in his or her home, and you're in your home, and you can do creative things and you can you know do quite a lot over the over the internet so well, i think one it's, thing oh go ahead go ahead sorry no i i'm just saying that you know to be to be able to create a balance and to create a uh, um opportunity to do things in a slightly different way is something that's necessary so we, yeah. we found how how adaptable we have to be yeah, and I I think that the teaching thing especially is going to be really helpful. I mean, the the way I had to do it is, um, you know, you had to email somebody and then you had to fly into wherever city they are and then you have to take a lesson with them and all the. I mean, now yeah. I think it's not out of the question. You know, just, hey, can I have an online lesson with you? Like absolutely, it's perfectly yeah. reasonable, and I think it's a good way to sort of. It's definitely yeah. more cost effective for the uh, for the the, sure. the party the student. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's a great thing that came out of it. And that's something that yep. we never would have considered probably before. And, you know, connecting, just connecting with colleagues and friends from all over the world. You know, I've, I've gotten so much closer to, you know, my really, really good friend and colleague, Andy Simon in, in, yep. um, in Hong Kong, you know, he, he started Andy's licorice talk and, you know, he had, I guess, 39 or 40 uh, episodes uh, interviewing colleagues from all over the world. And that was that was just a, a bright spot in the whole pandemic, too. And so just finding out how how we um, were sort of forced to connect over the Internet, but then having this opportunity to spend time together over the Internet was a very, yeah. very big, uh, big positive Uh, aspect so so i have a tendency to be optimistic you know that's good we need more optimists (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you know sometimes sometimes a a little bit to a fault but i think um i like i like the fact that you know i can i could look at the bright side and and try to take advantage of certain opportunities like make lemons lemonade out of lemons exactly exactly um, so you've mentioned multiple times the CSO TV and how the orchestra space is kind of changing. I think that, 
you know, oftentimes there's always this, uh, you know, the orchestra needs to change. We need to change the orchestra. I think mm-hmm. we're always innovating. You know, I'm the CSO, what the CSO does now is probably a lot different than what the CSO did when you first joined the orchestra. I imagine, I, I you know, the, the, the core of it's the same where you perform mm-hmm. great orchestra music, but how mm-hmm. you present it and various things about it are, are probably different. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think is like one small change that can be made right now? to sort of address these, the need for innovation? Well, I think we have done it, and I think it needs to continue, and that is reaching an audience, a worldwide audience through the Internet. And, and you know, a lot of us had talked about this before the pandemic. It's like, look at Berlin. Look what they're doing. It is so successful. It's so wonderful. We can watch them halfway around the world and the quality is so high, we have to be doing this. And during the pandemic, it was like, well, there's no other way we can reach our audience except for that. So we did do that, and it was sort of like necessity by necessity. It's necessity is the mother of invention, and and we had to invent this CSO TV series, otherwise we'd be completely cut off, you know? And um, that's, I think that's the one thing that we have to continue to cultivate, and that is a worldwide presence using the Internet. And I know a lot of orchestras have done that very successfully, and I've been able to watch colleagues, you know, um, p- play in um, not only Hong Kong, but, you know, in Berlin, but nearby, like in, but, but you know. The Minnesota Orchestra put on put on a wonderful series. The the, uh, the Houston Symphony put on put on uh, 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 performances. The Calgary Philharmonic. You know, it's it's all the orchestras now are uh, being um, given this opportunity to do that, and they have to find creative ways to to manage it. And so so I think that's a positive feature that we have to continue to look at. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's very important uh, and, and making it accessible to for a lot of people. I think that's that's yeah, always absolutely. been because I, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. I feel like the barrier to entry for an orchestra concert, a classical music concert mm-hmm. is, is very high in general. Mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. are oftentimes intimidated. They don't understand the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more we can make it a, a integrated part of society, I think the easier it will be for people to. Well, in in Europe, it is integrated into the fabric right. of their society. You know, you go to uh, Germany or, you know, Austria or France or, you know, England. It's part of their um, it's part of their upbringing. Yep. And so I think we have to do a little bit of catching up there. But I think it's not impossible. And that is the mission. You know, we are we are bringing it to, you know, students and we're bringing music to underserved populations and we are actually you know exposing them to that and we have to continue to do so and that's the that's the constant challenge for for our profession absolutely so uh one final question for you uh when you eventually retire from the CSO, I don't know when that's going to be because you still sound oh, no. great. You could probably no, play forever. Not, <laughs> we are we are not we were not um, even thinking about that because Stanley Drucker has set the bar very high. Okay, and I, I'm not I'm not even thinking about um, you know uh, until you know it, it. 
I'm only at, uh, this is my 45th year in the orchestra. How long did Stanley stay there? 50, you know, 55, 52, you know, 60 maybe. He even stayed there 60 years. So I've got a good 15 years to go. That's great. I'm still going to still gonna kind of like do it. And um, for some reason, if I couldn't, I suppose I could teach. I suppose I could, you know. Was there um, any non-musical things that you enjoy? I mean, I know we were yeah. talking a little bit beforehand that obviously your daughter has a has a show on the Food Network, and you're, yeah. you've uh, I know you're really into food and eating and that culture yep. kind of. Absolutely. Um, so would you ever consider like any sort of alternative career? Um, sure, I've I've often thought of um, being a public servant. You know, if, if sure. M- Molly did an interview with me um, when she was in. Uh, at Juilliard because you know she of course changed her career from being a professional musician to being a professional food journalist and now she's you know professional tv personality and and that all comes from just being flexible you know and she um was the editorial assistant at the Juilliard journal and so of course she's she's an second generation graduate of, of Juilliard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, following in my footsteps there. And when she was at the Juilliard Journal after she graduated, she spent three years there and she started interviewing um, alumni. And I was her first interview. So I was um, I was honored to be that. And she asked me, you know, as one of the uh, uh, questions, you know, would you what would what would you consider doing if you weren't a musician? I said, you know, I consider being a public servant and maybe running for a public office of some sort, you know, because I, I think more and more we need to engage our population and, you know, uh, take part in um, political discussions because, you know, we, we can't just let it all be swept away. Uh, like one of the great journalists say, you know, politics is not a spectator sport. You have to be involved in order to run your democracy, and so we we have we're losing our democracy now, and I'm I'm very concerned with that, and you know we're losing our environment too. So we we have to step up, and that's one of the things that I think uh, is is dear to my heart and and very important to me is to um, is to be involved in in an active way. Well, you'd have my vote, John, that's for sure. Yes! <laughs> Unfortunately, unless you run for federal office, I don't think I can vote for you, but because oh, I, right. I live in okay. Indiana, but, but yeah. you know, if we li- if yeah. end up living in the same zip code, I will absolutely vote for Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, yeah. Sam. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, it's always just a pleasure uh, talking with you, and thank you so much for sharing out your thoughts, and my gosh, you were busy. Uh, I can't believe that you uh-huh. <laughs> take more time for yourself, but that's kind of how you've uh-huh. always been. You've just always been uh, on to the well, next thing, which is great. It's I, I love doing what I do, and and it gives me energy. And I so so you know I'll just continue doing that until um, you know I can't. And so it's it's great. And thanks for reminding me about that program at Ravinia. I I that was <laughs> for unbelievable. Some reason, had, had, um, had, had forgotten about that, but now it, it's 
it's slowly coming back to me that that was all in the same program all in the same one yeah it was it was My pretty goodness. unbelievable yeah but uh <laughs> but that's that's john that's john that's what you do so um that's awesome but terrific Thank to get you. to talk you with you and thanks so much for taking your time to to be on my podcast i know that uh You've been uh, you've been on my list for a while, so I'm glad I finally was able to reach out and be able to able to connect. So, absolutely, my pleasure, Sam. Uh, it's always a delight to uh, speak with you and to connect with you. And so, I hope to hear you play again sometime soon. Absolutely, yeah, that'd be that'd be great fun. Um, so, for more right. information about myself and the Candid Clarinetist podcast, please be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist or drop by our website at candidclarinetistpodcast.com. Once again, my name is Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist podcast.